Good morning. Welcome to Lake Forest Davidson slash Story Hill. Uh, it's great to have you with us. Again, welcome and good morning. My name is Gray, one of the pastors on staff here, and it is a, a pleasure to be here with you. Uh, this morning, we will continue on a year-long series called The Story. If, if, if today is your first day with us, all year long, we've been going through the entire narrative, narrative of the Bible. Uh, and if you've been with us all along the way, today we are continuing in that story. And you'll remember back in January, we started in the book of Genesis at the very beginning. And we saw that God created the world and everything in it, including, including humanity, and said that it was good, very good. And then in Genesis chapter 3, we saw that humanity fell, and there's the separation, this rip between the relationship between God and humanity, and we are alienated from God. Much of the Old Testament, I'm going to cram a lot to a tiny little sentence here, but much of the Old Testament was, was the efforts to create this path back to God from humanity, a way to reconcile um, humanity to God, uh, to make a path for humanity to, to draw near to God again. And then in the New Testament, we see God himself enter the story. And instead of a path being drawn towards, towards God, uh, God himself makes a path towards us. He brings us near rather than creating a path for us to draw ourselves near. So God enters the story in the Gospels. And now we're in the book called Acts or Acts of the Apostles. And that book is, is about, you know, after Jesus uh, was crucified, resurrected, and, and gave the Holy Spirit to the leaders of the young church, then what happened? What happened in the life of the early church? And so we've been, again, we've been in the book of Acts for a couple of weeks, and we saw um, early on the church began in Jerusalem, kind of the hub of the Jewish faith. And many of the leaders from the early Christian movement, people called apostles who had walked with Jesus, were the leaders in this early church. But as the church grew, they needed more leadership. They needed more hands to help get the ministry of the church done. And so they underwent some different changes in organization. They started to deal with some, some of their first internal struggles. And then as the church grew, they began rubbing against some of the other groups in the area and persecution began. There were those who opposed the church who began trying to stomp out the ember of the early church. And Michael talked about this some last week, but you could think about it. They were trying to, to stomp out the ash of of the, the burning ember of the church. But instead of, of stomping it out like a hot coal, it ended up being more like when you, when you stomp on a puddle and the water shoots out the side. And so the church, instead of being stomped out, it, it spread beyond Jerusalem into the surrounding region called Judea, and then up north into Samaria, and then beyond to the ends of the earth, all the way, as Michael said, to the Lake Norman YMCA in Cornelius, North Carolina. And so this persecution we talked about, though, it came to a head in the story of this man named Stephen. And Stephen was one of the deacons of the church, an early, early church leader, and he was confronted by the Sanhedrin, which was pretty much like the, the Jewish kind of ruling group, and, and he gave them this sermon. He preached this message to them uh, that, that's kind of like his own version of the story. And he was saying all, all of the history of the Jewish people, they have resisted God, and you guys are doing the same thing. He says this, I'll give you a quick quote. He says, you stiff-necked people, again, he's saying this to the, to the people in the power positions of the religious structure there, you stiff-necked or you stubborn people, your hearts and ears are still uncircumcised. What's that? Again, the cool thing about the, the story in a year is that it all continues to build on itself. You'll remember in the Old Testament, circumcision was something that, that the Israelite people would do to, to set themselves apart. 
It was a way to, to mark their covenant with God and to set, set themselves as, as unique and set apart and chosen from, from the, the nations around them. And so what Stephen is saying, externally you guys are circumcised, but internally your hearts aren't changed. Your hearts don't reflect a covenant with God. Your hearts aren't any different than anyone around you. Your ears aren't changed. You don't hear from God. You hear everything that everyone else is hearing. And so Stephen gives this, this, harsh, this harsh, me- harsh message saying, you guys look right on the outside, but on the inside, it's nothing. He says, you are just like your ancestors. You always resist the Holy Spirit. So Stephen comes out swinging, and naturally the, uh, the guys don't like that very much. And so we, we see a couple of verses later uh, that they begin to stone him. And this is just fascinating. He, they, he says, uh, they write, at this, so when he says this, they covered their ears, and yelling at the top of their voices, they all rushed at him. I don't know if any of you have toddlers, but it's kind of like the, you plug your ears and you scream so you can't hear anything. Uh, and in doing this, don't they prove Stephen's point? Your hearts and ears are not circumcised. And so upon hearing this challenging message, they, they don't want to hear it. And they plug their ears, they yell at the top of their voices, and they all rushed at him. And they rushed at Stephen, dragged him out of the city, and began to stone him. Meanwhile, the witnesses laid their coats at the feet of a young man named Saul. So this young man, Saul, is who we'll talk some about today, because he was there for this. He's mentioned, kind of, he's tacked on to the end of Stephen's story and Saul was there, and he saw the whole thing. I uh, don't really know why he was marked as the guy to hold everyone's coat, but he was there. And, and so we'll come back to Saul in a minute. But to quickly frame what we're going to do today, uh, I'll, 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 I'll clarify that, and then we'll, we'll jump right in. I don't know if any of you have seen the Oscars. I actually have never seen the Oscars. But the Oscars are a, a movie award show. So naturally, I'm going to talk about the Oscars. Now, the Oscars are a movie award show every year, a bunch of awards, and kind of the, the granddaddy of them all is the best picture award. Uh, and every year, people are either really thrilled about who was picked for best picture or all the critics are upset at the other critics for criti- critiquing it wrong. But, uh, but the best picture, again, is kind of the granddaddy of them all. And in 2006, the Best Picture winner, does anyone know what the Best Picture winner in 2006 was? Titanic. Not Titanic. It was a, a movie called Crash. And it was, it was a controversial winner, uh, but I actually haven't seen Crash either, but I'm going to talk about it. <laughs> <laughs> but, but Crash, uh, I, I think it won not because of the execution, uh, but because of the kind of the concept. The idea of Crash was that you had all these separate lives uh, kind of mapped out in this movie. These different people whose lives would never have, have come together. And as you can guess in the name of the title, the series of events happens where their lives crash together. And, and, and these circumstances present themselves that otherwise wouldn't have been imaginable here in this collision, in this crash. And I think that's why it won. But crash, best picture of 2006. But we're going to see in Acts 9, we have kind of a similar theme, a crash. We have two guys' lives who, who otherwise would not have, have even been in the same kind of lane. Two guys who are doing completely different things, think of each other as enemies. Their lives are going to crash together in a way that changes everything for them and for the church. And it strips down everything they thought they knew, everything they had built their lives around, everything they believed, and it turns it on, it's on, head. Turns it on its head. These two guys, you, you probably guess one of them, Saul, 
but the other guy is a man named Ananias. And so we'll talk about this crash here in a second. Georgia read some of it for us. But first, we've got to talk a little bit about Saul, because, we, again, we know he was there at the stoning of Stephen. He was the guy holding the coats. Uh, but a little bit about Saul, because I think we misunderstand some of, of who he was and what his motivations were. He was uh, on, on a, a path to become a religious leader himself. He trained under this guy named Gamaliel, who was uh, a really kind of well-thought-of rabbi. He was the, the grandson of Hillel, if you know anything about Jewish history. That's a, a major Jewish teacher. And so he was kind of on the fast track to like being a power broker in Judaism. Uh, and, and we read in Acts, 3, Acts 8, 3, Saul began to destroy the church. Going from house to house, he dragged off both men and women and put them in prison. So he's on this fast track to become a religious leader. Uh, and, and for some reason, one of his top priorities is to destroy the fledgling Christian church. And why would he do this? I, I, again, I think a lot of times we, we think of Saul here as like this supervillain or this, this sociopath who just wants to like destroy things. And, and granted, he was doing bad things. But a lot of this was born out of uh, religious conviction for him. When he talks about what he was doing later in the book of Acts, in Acts 26, 9, Paul says, I too was convinced that I ought to do all that is possible to oppose the name of Jesus of Nazareth. He ought to do all that was possible. So he felt it was his role as a faithful Jew to oppose Jesus. And again, you think back on the whole story. When, 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 uh, when the people had strayed from God, it's because they started following the wrong people, following the wrong leaders, worshiping idols, being disobedient and unfaithful to God. And so, so Saul here thought, here's another way Israel is, is going off the path. He believed we've been given the law. The issue is that we're not following it. His sect of Judaism actually believed the Messiah would come when, when God's people were obedient enough. And so Saul's fervor, his zeal, was an effort to, to be faithful and obedient to God. And he thought this was a, a heretical kind of offshoot that needed to be snipped off at the base. And so again, what he was doing was wrong, but it wasn't out of just a, a sense of lust for destruction. He thought he was being faithful to God. And he was all in on that. But again, on this crash, we're going to see his whole world turn upside down. Where everything he built his life towards and around uh, is flipped on its head. So without, without waiting uh, anymore, let's get right into it. So in chapter 9, this is what's, what George read for us this morning. Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus, so that if he found any there who belonged to the way, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. So in a nutshell, Saul is setting out on this new mission to destroy the church. He's headed up to Damascus, and he's got these letters from the high priest, pretty much a guy who, who has a lot, of, a lot of control and power in the synagogue, that we don't know exactly what the letter said. Some think maybe it was endorsing Paul, so a letter he could take to the synagogues in Damascus and, and be like, hey, work with this guy. Um, sorry, Saul. I keep saying Saul and Paul. Uh, but a letter that maybe endorses what Saul's doing, or it could even be a, a list of names of people who had fled synagogues in Jerusalem 
Because again, remember the stomp and everyone spread out? It could be a list of names of people that had disappeared that maybe could be found in Damascus. We don't know, but, but again, Saul is going on this mission to find Christians in Damascus. And this is where, the, this is where it all begins right here. He's on his way to Damascus, again, to, to hunt down Christians. In this verse 3, as he neared Damascus on his journey, he was getting close, and suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him, and he fell to the ground. Again, we don't know if this was lightning. We don't know if it was more like a, a flash grenade. We don't know what it was, but it, it knocked him to the ground. Isn't it, isn't it interesting that, uh, that this is what it took to get Saul's attention, for him to be knocked to the ground, and again, he, uh, we, I think back to the, the Sanhedrin at, at Stephen's sermon where they were plugging their ears and screaming uh, and making a noise so loud they couldn't hear God. This is what it took for God to get Paul's attention, get Saul's attention, for him to finally hear. And so the first thing that happens, again, is Saul is knocked to the ground. But then he, he hears a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? And so right after this act of kind of severity where, where Saul is knocked to the ground by the power of God comes this act of gentleness. Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Repeating a name like that twice, we see kind of in the Hebrew language and throughout Scripture, it's, it's a term of intimacy, of care. We saw it when, when Jesus uh, was talking to Martha. He said, Martha, Martha, you are worried about many things. We saw in the Old Testament when David, after his son Absalom died, he said, Absalom, Absalom. And he wept over the loss of his son. And so, so Jesus' first words, the act is this shock that knocks him to his ground, but his first words are, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? And it's interesting Again, so much of this dialogue, and we'll talk about this as we go along, but it's in, I, I would have expected a Saul, stop persecuting me, or, or something harsh, something uh, that matched the tenor of the flash and being knocked to the ground. But there, again, there's a severity, and then there's this gentleness that follows right behind it that I think uh, tells us a lot about how God is. He says, why do you persecute me? And interestingly, again, again, Saul retells this, this story a few times in the book of Acts as he's talking to other, uh, other people who are confronting him about his Christian faith. And in, in Acts 26, he, says, he recounts what happened here, and he says, Saul, he says, Jesus said to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. You may be wondering what a goad is. I certainly was. A, a goad is a, a tool, and I think we have a picture over here in a minute. It's, it's, uh, yeah, it's a tool like that, and you use it to lead along livestock. And so you see you hold it by the handle there at the bottom, and there's this sharp point at the end, and, and you use it to, to lead animals like oxen that are resisting being led. And so if they're not going, you kind of tap them on the, the heel or whatever with that pointy end, and they'll move along. Uh, and... And, and what Jesus is saying here is you're kicking against the goads. And so a lot of times when a, a, an ox or something would be irritated that he's being led, they'd kick back against the goads. And, and in doing that, this resistance would just make it hurt more because you'd be kicking into this hard spike. And so, and so Jesus says it is hard for you to kick against the goads. And so he implied in that is that, that God's been leading Saul somewhere 
again, as a, as a shepherd or a herder would with that goad, you only use a goad to lead someone somewhere. And so, so Jesus is saying, Saul, why are you, it is hard for you to kick against the goads. And what's interesting, again, we often think about this encounter on the road as this one like watershed moment. Uh, but, but this little passage about kicking against the goads makes me think that God's been leading Saul a very long time. We tend to just look at the moment when things happen. Again, if, if, if you're a Christian and you think about your own life, like maybe when you came to Christ or, or, or when you met Christ, uh, we often think about that moment, uh, but we often don't think about all the moments that led to the moment. And I think that's true here with Saul too. I, I wonder if, if uh, that sermon that Stephen gave when Saul was standing there with the coats, maybe there was just that little seed of doubt planted in Stephen's mind. I don't know that, but I wonder, again, because, because Jesus tells us here that he's been leading Saul for some time. And the ironic thing is it sure doesn't seem like it, you know? Because Saul's been running hard against the church. It doesn't seem like he's been getting closer. It seems like he's been getting farther. But Jesus tells us he's been leading him the entire way. And then the other in- interesting thing about this is, is it is hard for you to kick against the goads. Uh, it's not a question. It's a statement. It's, it's saying, it's been hard for you to do this. God knows it's been hard. Uh, it's been hard for you to kick against the goads. I wish you wouldn't kick against the goads the way you would, the way you are. But we move on to verse 5. Who are you, Lord? Saul asks. So again, Jesus shows up, says, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? And then Saul responds, who are you, Lord? And then Jesus responds, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Interesting that Saul's persecution of the, per- the church, Jesus said, is persecuting him. And so Jesus says, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Now get up and go into the city and you will be told what you must do. And again, if we get ourselves out of what we know about, what, if we've already read this before, if we set all that aside, there are a lot of things about this that are, just, that are kind of weird. It's a short conversation. Uh, again, if I was thinking how this would probably go, I would have expected uh, Saul to have to confess some sins there on the road or say a prayer or, uh, or make strike some kind of deal with God that he wouldn't do it anymore or things like that. But, but all Jesus says is, why do you persecute me? I am Jesus, now get up and go. There's no punishment. Jesus says, just get up and go. And so in verse 7, we, we continue. The men traveling with Saul stood there speechless. This is the first we hear of those guys. I'm sure they've just been freaked out the entire time. They heard the sound but did not see anyone. And then in verse 8, we continue, Saul got up from the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he could see nothing. So we see this is the first time Saul's opened his eyes. He could see nothing. So they led him by the hand into Damascus. So here Saul's can't see anything even though his eyes are open, and he has to be led the rest of the way there. And for three days he was blind, and he did not eat or drink anything. So again, when I read this, two, two questions come to mind. Uh, why make Saul blind? Why not have him paralyzed? Or why not have some kind of skin disease like leprosy 
or why not have uh, a really bad headache or a fever or something like that? Uh, I think it's, it's because almost in a call back to Stephen's sermon, the, the external is going to match the internal this time. The internal spiritual blindness that Saul has been living in, again, thinking he could see, but really he was completely blind, the internal is going to match the external this time. And again, you think back to Stephen's sermon when he was saying the, the external looks one way, but the internal is different. Here, here Jesus is saying, we're going to make these things square so you, can, so you can see clearly, ironically, even though he can't see. But he can see that he cannot see. And another interesting thing is, uh, you know, science tells us when you lose one sense, a lot of times your other sense, senses get heightened. And so here Saul can't see and so it's like maybe, like all he can do now is hear. And so, so Jesus has, has put Saul in this, in this position where he's going to listen. And it's severe, but this is what it took. And then the second question, and I touched on this a second ago, but, but, but in my mind it's like, man, we had, you, you had this big, big bad guy, enemy of the church, confrontation on the road, and you just say who you are and send him on his way. I feel like, uh, why not capitalize here on the, the vulnerable moment or kind of the, the raw emotion uh, and strike while the iron's hot? But again, instead, uh, Jesus says who he is, and he says it like he cares about Saul, and then he sends Saul on his way and to wait and sit for three days. Uh, and, and again, I, I think the message in that is, is God's okay with the waiting. Uh, he's, he's not in a hurry uh, to do what he's going to do. So that's where we leave Saul. He's on his way to Damascus, and he's about to crash into the life of this other guy, Ananias. And, and, and so we'll enter our second character, Ananias. But again, Saul, blind, on his way to Damascus. We don't know what's going to happen with him. He doesn't know what's going to happen. So Ananias, our second character. Ananias, we don't know a ton about him. He's a, a Christian disciple in the city of Damascus. And again, his life, which was uh, going one direction, is about to take a turn and crash into the life of Saul. So again, we read verse 10. In Damascus, there was a disciple named Ananias. The Lord called to him in a vision, Ananias. Yes, Lord, he answered. The Lord told him, go to the house of Judas, different Judas, on Straight Street, and ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. In a vision, he has seen a man named Ananias come and place his hands on him to restore his sight. Lord, Ananias answered, I have heard many reports about this man and all the harm he has done to your holy people in Jerusalem, and he has come here with authority from the chief priests to arrest all who call on your name. And again, this part of the story, uh, it's easy to forget where Ananias is coming from. He's living in a time of persecution of the church, uh, some semblance of like an underground church where they know these guys are coming, coming to, to arrest them. And Ananias says, I hear you, God, that, that I'm supposed to go heal this guy, but I don't, do you know who this guy is? I'm, I'm not sure if you've heard about all this, this stuff he's done, but he's kind of like textbook bad guy. Saul had arrested brothers and sisters of the way we read. He was there for the stoning of Stephen. We have every reason in the world to hate this guy. And admittedly, if, if Ananias came to me and said, hey, I had this vision that I'm supposed to go to, 
Saul, who's, oh, by the way, came here. The reason he's here is because he's trying to arrest us. And if Ananias said, I'm supposed to go to him, I'd, I'd be asking the question, are you sure that was God? Or, you know, like, what did you have for lunch? Uh, maybe, it was, maybe you had a bad dream. Uh, but, but, but in all seriousness, Ananias responds to this call from God with a little bit of resistance. Like, I, I don't think you understand what you're asking. And so in his own way, Ananias is, is doing a little bit of kicking against the goads here as well. God is trying to lead him into the story, and Ananias is saying, I'm not so sure. But then the Lord responds. He says, but the Lord said to Ananias, go, this man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and to their kings and to the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. And again, Ananias, going to Saul is risking Ananias' life. And Ananias is told to risk his life for this man who, in Ananias' eyes, is the worst of the worst. The, the opposition of what is good and true. An existential threat. A supervillain. And the, the line in here that, again, if I put myself in Ananias' shoes, underground church, we're trying to survive, uh, we can't miss that, that God said, Saul is my chosen instrument. And if I'm Ananias, I'm wondering, first, how? How is Saul, this guy who's been arresting Christians and trying to destroy the church, uh, how is he going to proclaim your name to the Gentiles and their kings and to the people of Israel? Isn't that what we're supposed to be doing? How, is, how would this guy do that? He's doing the opposite of that. And then again, so first how, second why. Like literally anyone else here would be better than that guy. Saul is, he's not, only, he's not gospel neutral. He's not, he's not just bad. He's like anti-gospel. He is setting out to undermine what you're saying he's supposed to be doing. He's not trying to proclaim your name. He's trying to stomp it out. But again, as we think back on the story, isn't that the way God works? The chosen instrument being the most unlikely of choices. It's not, not the first, but the last. It's not the oldest son, but it's the youngest. It's not the biggest and the strongest, but it's the smallest and the weakest that God chooses. It's not the, not the Messiah warrior king coming in on a horse to conquer Rome, but it's, it's a little baby born in a manger. Isaiah 55, God tells us, your ways are not my ways. So he's saying the way the world says things should go, that's not how I work. Those aren't my ways. And so again, Saul is the chosen instrument in a way that on one hand makes no sense at all. But within the scope of, of the story of Scripture and how God redeems, it makes sense. Uh, it, per it makes perfect sense. And then the second piece here uh, is, is that verse 16. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. And, and we know in the chapters ahead, Saul will suffer a great deal. Saul will become Paul uh, and, and will suffer a lot in the rest of his life. But the interesting word in that verse there is must suffer. Uh, and it's different than will suffer because it's, because God's not saying what will happen. He's saying, uh, it, baked within that must is the sense of purpose. These things have to happen 
for some greater purpose. And again, that purpose lies in the must. The suffering will come because it must. And the second piece is, is, is God says, I will show him. Because again, if you put yourself in the mind of Ananias, here you have this guy uh, showing up who's blind, completely helpless, uh, and this guy has been arresting your friends. He may have killed some of your friends, uh, and he is, he's gone from having power over you to being completely powerless. And I believe there may be a part in this where, where God says, stay out of the judgment seat, Ananias. This is not your vengeance to enact. This is, this is not your justice to deal out. Because again, the question, Saul is brought low, and what will Ananias do with that? And I think, I think the Lord says this, uh, one, to talk about the, the purpose of what will come, but also to protect Ananias uh, from this situation we're about to talk about right here. Again, so, so before we go into verse 17, Ananias and Saul, their lives are about to, they're about to overlap. They've heard, they've heard about each other, but Ananias uh, went to the house. So again, he had this back and forth with God, but he went. He went to the house and entered it. And placing his, sand, his hands on Saul, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here has sent me so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately something like scales fell from Saul's eyes and he could see again. He got up and was baptized and after taking some food, he regained his strength. So again, after, after kicking against the goad, Ananias went. And yeah, I think some of those beautiful words in the Bible are brother Saul. Those are the first words Ananias says to Saul. Again, after all that Saul has done, his first words are brother Saul to this man who had done so much evil, who had inflicted so much pain, who, had, who maybe had, had made Ananias or so many of Ananias' friends leave their homes and everything they knew, lost people that they loved. And his first words are brother Saul, I think because because simply because of who God said Saul was. God said, he is my chosen instrument. And Ananias trusted that. He showed faith uh, that God knew what he was doing. The faith of Ananias reminds me of, of uh, Hebrews 11.1, 1, where you know, it says, faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. Because that was what, that's the situation Ananias was walking into. Uh, he had no assurance about what was about to happen when he walked into that room. But he had faith that the God who sent him there was good. And, and that what God told him about Saul, even when he couldn't see it. Because again, put yourself in the mind of Ananias when you walk into that room and you see blind Saul sitting there. Uh, what are the, the emotions that come up in your chest when you see him? I think it's the faith of Ananias that God was good and, and, and that what God told him was true that made him able to say, Brother Saul. Even when he couldn't see it. Even when he couldn't feel it. And so as we wrap up, we return to the idea of the crash. Because uh, the question in a lot of this is why have this crash? Uh, why not just have it all taken care of on the road? Why involve Ananias at all in any of this? Why, so we'll, we'll do this one at a time. Why the crash for Ananias? Why involve this risk for him? Because again, it's a risk. 
The, the promise, when you're obedient to what God says, there's no promise bad things won't happen or that mean people will return nice. I mean, look at Stephen. Stephen was obedient and it led to his death. And so there was no promise that things would go perfectly for Ananias, but he went. Uh, because the promise is that if you are, are obedient, if you enter into God's story, then God will use your life and there will be significance and purpose and everything that happens must happen to advance the gospel, to advance God's story. Because again, you, what may, we may not have had Paul without Stephen if he hadn't preached that sermon that day. We may not have had Paul without Ananias. And so again, An- Ananias, so the first part is, is there was this risk, but, but the second is Ananias, he acted, but he did kick against the goats. He resisted. He resisted this idea of loving his enemies. Again, Jesus had talked about that in Matthew 5, where he says, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Uh, and so I, th- I think this crash for Ananias, uh, there, there was still a part of him that, that it was hard for that to really get to the, the deepest parts of his soul. I think what a crash does, and some of you may have had things like this happen in your life, a crash, uh, it's almost like pressure-treated lumber where the, the chemicals that prevent the wood from rotting are, are applied with so much pressure that they go deep into the wood uh, and, and, and prevent it from rotting. So a lot of these crash moments, these high-intensity moments, uh, push the gospel deeper into who we are in a way that like reading a book or, or thinking about it wouldn't be able to. So that's Ananias. Why the crash for Saul? Again, why not just have this all happen out on the road um, or just have him wait by himself? Why did, why, what is the role of Ananias in Saul's story? And we've talked about this some. Saul would become Paul, and Paul would go on to be a significant leader of the church and would write many of the books of the New Testament. And if you ask scholars, what, what are, I mean, there are many themes of what Paul writes about, but one of the central ones is this idea of grace. This idea of grace as a, a kindness or a gift that is undeserved. Grace as getting mercy when you, deserve, uh, when you deserve judgment. And we see grace fully embodied in this story. Where, where again, Saul is on the way to persecute and arrest these Christians, and he's incapacitated. Who comes to save him but the very people he was coming to destroy? The very thing he was setting out to destroy ends up being the very, the very thing that saves him. The church saves Saul. And he receives mercy from those he was looking to destroy. And I think everything in Saul's life was built on that rock. That fundamental experience of, of, of experiencing grace, not just thinking about it. And again, without this crash, I don't know... What, what Saul's life might have looked like. And then secondly, Ananias tells him the words, Jesus has sent me that you may see me again. So we had the, the kind of meta purpose in Saul's life, but here uh, we read the very personal purpose of this for Saul. Ananias says, Jesus sent me that you may see again. And again, this isn't just so your, the scales will fall off your eyes, but this is so, so your heart will be able to see again. So you will, so you will not be blind in your eyes, or in your soul, or in your heart. And again, so through the, the church, Saul sees the grace of God, and his life is never the same. And so again, with, with both Ananias and Saul, 
their faith, their lives, the church, everything would have been different without this crash. And the crash happened largely because they, either by the force of God or by their own faith, they found a way to stop kicking against the goads, to stop resisting where God was leading them. And the beauty of the book of Acts is that this is Saul's story. This is Ananias' story, uh, but this is the story of the church. This is our story too. And and so a question I'll ask kind of as we we close here is, is where do you see yourself in this story? Maybe you see yourself in Saul, someone who it's hard not to think isn't too far gone for God to to love, for God to, to still be leading somewhere, too far off the path. Or maybe you see yourself in Saul in the sense that you, you think you've got it all figured out and you're totally blind to the ways that you're beating people over the head with it. Or maybe you see yourself in, in Ananias where you, you feel like there's this direction God's leading you, but it's hard to trust him when it seems like it doesn't make sense. Again, where do you see yourself in this story? Where Are you kicking against the goads that God may be leading you? And again, we all know how that story is going to end. Uh, The goad always beats the ox for what it's worth. But maybe the question is this. uh, An ox kicks against the goads because they don't think they're going somewhere good or because they don't trust where they're being led. Sometimes they're probably right. But but, but it's not the case with God. (laughs) Uh, But what if... You believe that God was leading you somewhere good. Even though there's this, uh, this impulse within us to doubt that, what if, you, what if you really believed that God was leading you somewhere good? Somewhere that mattered? What if he was leading you, what if he was leading a, a tired person to rest? What if he was leading the, the thirsty man to water or the hungry woman to food? So that's the question I'll leave you with today is, is where do you see yourself in this story and are you kicking against the goads for a way God may be leading you in your life? So we'll take a, a moment or two here to talk to God and to, to consider that question. And then I'll close this in prayer. So please pray with me. Lord, we thank you for leading us even when we don't want to be led uh, for loving us enough to goad us along. Um, Lord, we ask that uh, you soften our hearts, open our minds uh, to what we may not want to believe. Um, And Lord, that you give us uh, the grace to have faith, um, not born out of a, a strength of our own will, but out of out of a a trust in your leading. We ask all these things in your son's name. Amen.